Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 19th of June 2017. This year marks the centenary of the Battle of Third Ypres, fought in Belgium from July to November 1917. Dr Nick Lloyd from King's College London has written a new book on the battle titled Passchendaele, A New History, published by Penguin Viking. I spoke to Nick about his book and asked him to give us a broad overview of the battle. Third Ypres is fought between the 31st of July and about the 10th of November 1917. And it's the, for the British, it's the major campaign of 1917. It's fought to try and secure key ground in Belgium, uh, particularly the U-boat bases uh, along the Channel Coast at Ostend and Zeebrugge, um, but also to try and smash up the German army as well. So it becomes a, a really central part of the war. It's one of the one of the major campaigns that the British army fight on the Western Front, and it's perhaps one of the most iconic. So why did you think a new book was necessary on the battle? What were your motives for writing it? I think that's a great question. I mean, I obviously I'd written about different aspects of the war before, um, but we were looking at something to do. And I think anniversaries and publishers are very interested in anniversaries. And I think the public is as well. Um, and so 2017 was an obvious one. Uh, the Somme has been written about very extensively. But Passchendaele and the Third Eep campaign hasn't, you know, com- compared to the Somme it has actually quite a limited amount of writing on it. I mean, there are a handful of major books. There's Lynn MacDonald, there's Leon Wolfe's book in the 1950s. There's obviously Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson's uh, Passchendaele Untold Stories. Only, only a handful of books on the campaign. So that attracted me in a sense. I felt there was time, you know, it was time now for a new... Uh, look at the battle uh, after 100 years. Would you know why it's been neglected so much by historians when it has such an iconic status in the public imagination? I'm not sure, I think. I think that's a, you know, I've puzzled over this question and why, given that the battle and the kind of terrible conditions in which it was fought, which has become central to our imagery of the war, why hasn't it been the study you know, why hasn't it been studied extensively? And I'm not entirely sure I have the answer other than the sense that I think people felt that there was nothing much to say about it. Had a couple of books in the mid-1990s on it. And for then, it's there, it's really sort of stagnated, if you will. It's a sort of an apt word, really. I, I think it's a campaign that's loaded with so much baggage, emotional, political, strategic, or whatever. It's a battle that has been, I think people haven't necessarily wanted to touch it or have touched aspects of it, um, but actually there hasn't been that kind of overall study for about 20 years now. Because one of the debates that you uh, touch on and also enter into it is over the question of uh, Commander-in-Chief Sir Douglas Haig's role. Uh, on one side, you know, there's a debate which argue that he was overconfident, uh, let the battle go on too long, and it was all an unnecessary mess. And then there's the other side which say, he he believed it was a necessary battle he did his best and you know it was a necessary fight obviously to save the french armies who had mutinied in the spring where do you stand on this sort of debate yeah i mean it's an interesting one and it's a complex debate about Haig's role in the battle i think Haig correctly identifies belgium as a strategically important ground i think no one really argues with him on that uh, i think the war cabinet in london recognized that to fight anywhere, they might as well fight in, in Belgium. Britain goes to war over Belgium, so it obviously has strategic implications. Uh, the Admiralty wants something done about those U-boat bases. So there are a number of reasons why you would fight here, which Haig is very, very, you know, very aware of and, and very much believes in. 
But on the, on the other hand, Haig doesn't always fight in the way that is more most effective and wants to go for a major breakthrough. And I think that's that's perhaps where he falls down. In a sense, he doesn't fight in a way that makes the most of the British advantages in terms of firepower and preparation. And I think, you know, Haig does some things well, but I think it's still, uh, it's if you're looking for the battle as a vindication of Haig, I think you will be unsatisfied. I think if you're looking for the battle as an indication of Haig's complete unsuitability for the job, again, you might come away with that not necessarily happy. So it is a complex debate. I think some of the major problems with Haig is, as I said, this desire for breakthrough, which I think in the context of 1917 is unrealistic. Um, and I also feel his decision to put Sir Hubert Goff, uh, the commander of Fifth Army, in charge of the initial assault was a mistake. And most historians would agree with that, I think. Um, however, he, he later on makes amends and puts the second army commander, Herbert Plumer, in charge, who is a much more suitable and effective commander. Because some of the debate about Haig's unsuitability was obviously written by Lloyd George, who, who wrote in his second volume of memoirs, which I've got somewhere, about the campaign in the mud. And Lloyd George is is, um, is very derogatory about how he was misled and, and the general staff kept him in the dark. And obviously, the, these memoirs were published in 1933, I think, after five years after Haig died. But... Lloyd George actually emerges as a very controversial character as well. Some people argue that he is as much to blame as indeed Haig was for the conflict in terms of he should have or stopped, stopped the campaign and actually called an end to the attacks going in. Where do you stand on that sort of complementary debate? Yeah, no, it, it is. It sort of runs in parallel. And Lloyd George's line is that he didn't want the battle. He foresee, foresaw that it would be a disaster. He was kept in the dark. There was nothing he could have done. It was all Haig and Robertson's fault. Robertson, the chief of the Imperial General Staff. And, you know, this, people have taken this line. Other people have challenged it. Now, there's no doubt Lloyd George is responsible he gives his assent to the operation. You know, he lets it start. And he also then doesn't stop it as it continues. So I think there are a number of, you know, and then people have attacked Lord George for this, saying that, you know, it's just special pleading. He could have stopped the battle any time he wanted and so on and so forth. I think there's a number of sort of additional points to bear in mind on that. Uh, he is not keen on it and he consents for an operation to go ahead, provided it is on a so-called step-by-step basis. It's going to be a limited series of attacks very similar to the Messine operation on 7th of June, more like bite and hold. So you're not going all out for the decisive breakthrough. And this is what Haig sort of seems to, in his muddy way, suggest that it is a sort of limited series of attacks. So it's, you know, we're not going to hazard everything on this operation. So the kind of desire for a breakthrough, Haig kind of plays down in London. The other thing that's the problem for Lloyd George is that the sort of battle or the, the, the preparations meander on. And then there's no real authorization for the battle until Haig has to get in touch with Robertson and say, well, what's going on? And then finally, authorization is given. This is only given about five or six days before the attack actually commences. You know, again, is this Lloyd George's fault? Well, the problem is by this point, Haig has already, or Goff has already begun the preliminary bombardment. So it's, it's sort of presenting London with a fait accompli by saying, well, you want to go ahead with it now. By the way, we've already moved all the men in position. We're starting bombarding the German lines. So, you know, can you really call that off at that stage? You know, and again, I think the problem is with Lloyd George, particularly in the August period, the following month, he's distracted by other domestic political concerns and he, he sort of lets Hay get on with it. And it, only really in, in, in late September does he, he actually you know, decide to grip the battle. Um, and he goes to France to see Haig at GHQ. 
And this is really the moment where he could have stopped it. He could have said, well, you know, you've, ha- you've had you know, the best part of two months here. You know, you haven't achieved a breakout. That's it. Uh, but he goes uh, just at the moment when they've, I think several days after they've, they've restarted the attack on the 20th of September, the Battle of Men in Road, which I argue in the book is a very successful battle. And it really does a lot of damage to the German army. So ironically, Lloyd George goes to the front at the time when Haig's actually riding a crest of a wave. So it's perhaps understandable if he doesn't feel able then to stop it. There's no doubt that Lloyd George could have stopped it, but the, the kind of chips don't fall into place at the right time. And I think so. So I think it's a slightly, slightly more nuanced picture than perhaps the, the kind of either or argument we've had in the past. So what's, what I found really interesting about your book was how you actually take the German perspective in terms of what they were going through in responding to British attacks beyond the British artillery fire. Can you tell us about what their experience was of the battle? Yeah, the, the German side is very interesting. And I think this is often what's written out of our understanding. You know, we tend to labour at length on the difficulties and problems of the British army in Flanders, you know, of which there's a lot, uh, not understanding the role of the, the enemy. You know, the Germans fight very effectively and very well for certainly the early stages of the battle where their defensive system, this defence in depth, this checkerboard pattern of strong points and counterattack divisions in the rear are very, very difficult for the British to deal with. Um, but as the British change tactics, as they move to this bite and hold phase in September, much more firepower, limited attacks, German defense, defensive system is much less effective. And it causes all kinds of problems for the German high command in how do they respond to these hammer blows that are coming on the, the front. And, you know, I think if you look at some of the German sources, they, they, they really do suffer in September and October of 1917 when fighting is in its most intensive and their morale does not break in Flanders, but it gets quite close. And the German high command is very, very worried about the prolonged effects of this kind of fighting. Um, they do consider a withdrawal. They don't obviously make a withdrawal, but they do consider it. And some German commanders very much believe that the, the kind of horrors experienced in Flanders were the worst of the war, were, were the worst they had ever experienced. And, you know, the, the, the disadvantages in fighting along this kind of muddied moonscape terrain Again, it's been well recognised for the attackers. German sources make it clear that operating in the open, with no real trench system to defend on, nothing, no real shelter, apart from the odd sort of pillbox, was very, very difficult for the Germans and produced a real uh, lowering of their morale. Because one of the points you make in your work is, is how, in a way, Third Epoch um, could be seen as a, as a lost victory for the British. Do you think we actually came close to creating a major um, upset in terms of the war, in terms of maybe military defeating the Germans there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think these, these kind of um, counterfactuals or kind of uh, ideas, I think, are difficult. And, uh, you know, I would understand that. I would recognise that. But I do think that had certain things been done slightly differently, had the British adopted a more, a more cautious series of bite-and-hold attacks earlier that conserved their own strength and tried to, to wear down the German army, um, and didn't try to risk the breakthrough, which was was very very difficult to do. I think then it's likely that more pressure would have been put on the German army, and they would have had to they would have had to come to some very serious decisions about whether they just wanted to uh, endure what was coming and endure these regular hammer blows, because the three major hammer blows they have and they sustain on the 20th of September, Menin Road, 26th of September, Polygon Wood, and Broodsinder on the 4th of October do push them very, very hard. And had say, had you had another three of those kind of battles, then German casualties would have again been increased. 
pressure on the German army would have increased exponentially. So I think it's not too far to speculate that had it been done slightly differently, the Germans may well have decided that they, they would cut their losses and make some kind of strategic retreat in Belgium, which, of course, would have would have sparked all kinds of manoeuvrings and political issues about, you know, compromise peace and that kind of thing. Whether that could have happened, uh, I'm not sure. But I think it, it does raise that possibility that there's something that, you know, there was a window of opportunity in 1917 for some kind of results. So when we actually take a step back and look at the battle 100 years ago, what did it achieve strategically, militarily? Did it further the end of the war? Um, again, I think this is a very difficult question to answer. It clearly exhausted the British. The British are, are pretty exhausted by it. Uh, but again, I think similarly, it does take a, a, a significant toll of the German army. In sense of results, it doesn't really achieve a great deal. Obviously, the British do not capture the ground that they'd wanted. They don't recover the U-boat bases. They're occupied now in a, a salient on the Passchendaele Ridge, which is really indefensible. So it's kind of inconclusive or, or you know, not particularly positive in that sense. But I think it, it shows ultimately that the trench deadlock is now coming to an end. And those series of, of technologies and tactics that have been honed throughout the last sort of two years are now producing a situation where the advantage that the defender has had really, you know, since 1915 is now moving back towards the attacker. So I think it does mark the, almost the high point of trench warfare, but also the moment at, at which a kind of new war emerges with, with the kind of tanks at Cambrai with a German breakthrough in March 1918. So I think it's ultimately inconclusive. But that doesn't mean, I think, that it doesn't have results. I think it's just, it's sort of buried in everything else. Because one of the outcomes I've noticed, certainly from my grandfather's um, division, which was the 56th Division, was a series of problems in some units where there was there was certainly talk of mutinous um, feelings, that the, the, the soldiers were becoming very alarmed about Goff and what he'd done. And, and there's certainly one report in the London Rifle Brigade where the commanding officer actually assembles a battalion to address discontent in a unit, suggesting that it was actually quite serious and something could have happened. I don't know whether, I mean, that might be just the one division or one battalion even. Did you find any sort of um, impact of that across units in terms of discontent or rumblings of, of some form of protest by units that, be, that had been involved in the attacks? You, you tend to get the worst sort of uh, disciplinary problems or morale issues in August of 1917, where kind of Goff is sort of floundering around with a series of small-scale attacks in terrible conditions. And this seems to push the British Army about as far, you know, as hard as they can go. Then you tend to get more sort of Dominion troops, Australians, uh, New Zealanders, um, <clears throat> Canadians that, that are involved. Their discipline generally seems fine. I mean, the Australians always have a slightly, you know, have a worse disciplinary record than anyone else. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. But I think it's an indication, again, of how hard they're pushed. They really are pushed very hard in October. But, you know, not, it's, you know, it's interesting in terms of 1917, 1918, you know, the French have undergone major mutinies in May and June that seriously imperils their war. Given the horrors of Passchendaele, the British army is pretty stable throughout, which is remarkable, actually. But there's no doubt that Passchendaele, some people talk about it being kind of low point of morale or one of the most difficult periods. And I wouldn't disagree with that. Finally, Nick, where can people get your book from? Uh, obviously, we can get it from the usual uh, outlets. It should be available in, in uh, many of the bookshops I've seen, which is really encouraging. Nick, thank you very much for your time. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.